Let us pray. Fathers, we come to your word. We would ask that it would help shape us, that it would help mold us, that we would come underneath its direction for your glory and for our edification. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going through most of the chapter, I believe. Yeah, most of the chapter today. This passage evokes a range of emotions, depending on your view of God. For some, when they read this passage, they will find great joy in it, which leads to peace and hope. Others will find surprise which will lead to wonder and spark the imagination of how can it be? Others may experience outrage, which leads to people questioning God. Still others may experience anguish, as the Apostle Paul had when he wrote this, or shock because of sorrow and worry about those who are not yet believers in Jesus. This passage is so difficult for some that they will reject God or they'll scoff at the whole notion that this can even be true. While others upon reading it, don't want anything to do with our faith. And yet others find great comfort and joy. So what can be so terrible where some see this as an outrage and others see it as a great joy? There's a promise in this passage. That's the problem. There's a promise by God who is free and sovereign and who shows mercy to those he wants to show mercy to. Not those who think that they deserve it. And that's why a passage like this is so important to us. It gives us the correct lens to view who God is and who we are. And that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. Passage is divided into three sections. And I'll work through these sections a section at a time. So if you would, look with me down into verse 1 of chapter 9 and hear the word of the Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is the God over all. Blessed forever and ever. Amen. Do you see the cause of Paul's pain? You have this race of people. God's chosen people. All the way back in Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible. God chose a man, Abraham, out of thousands of men and says, I am going to bless you and nations are going to be born out of you. And you will be the father of my chosen people. A race was created. And in that race, he gives a summary of all of the blessings that that race had. They were adopted by God. There is no other race on the face of the earth that had the relationship with the God of the Bible like the Israelites. Not the Egyptians, not the Sumerians, not the Babylonians. No one had the special relationship. Not only that, but they understood what God's glory was. They have these wonderfully rich stories of God parting a Red Sea and over two million, approximately two million people walking across a dry seabed. And as soon as they get to the other side, the greatest army in the world who's chasing them, the waves come crashing down and the, the army is annihilated. Not by bows and arrows, but by water. Story after story after story reveals God's glory to them. They have the promises. The promise of Isaac. The promise of Abraham. The promise of David. The promise of Noah. The promise of Adam. That their God will never leave them. They'll never forsake them. That that their God will eventually give them a king that will rule over them. They gave him a set of rules to live by. Not to be a cosmic killjoy, but to help them avoid the pitfalls of life. They worshipped. And yet that wasn't enough. Paul said, I would, I know Jesus I'm a Jew and I know Jesus and I would rather give my salvation to that entire race and be accursed. That means be sent to hell and be separated from God forever and ever and ever. That's how much anguish is in my heart because they don't get it. 
They have every advantage in the book. And many of them still don't get it. Do we remember the scene of the crucifixion? This comes into clear focus. This comes out of Mark chapter 15. Jesus is hanging on the cross. There's two robbers, one to the right and one to the left. And the charge above Jesus reads, the king of the Jews. And those who were passing by were deriding Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Also, the chief priest and the scribes, that would be the religious ruling authorities, the people who would know Scripture better than anybody else on the face of the earth. In fact, there were scribes and priests who had memorized entire chunks of Scripture to the T. There were a number of them that could cite Isaiah verbatim with every period and every comma. Isaiah is 64 chapters, 66 chapters. It's a huge book. And they knew it by heart. And the chief priests and scribes mocked Jesus to one another, saying, He has saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Well, of course, Jesus wasn't going to do that because even if he did that, they still wouldn't believe. They had every advantage. And they still are in unbelief. And this is his people. Causing him great anguish. And great sorrow. The word great in the Greek means mega. We get that word. We use that word all the time. It means more than we can ever imagine, right? We have a mega sale. It is like massive. He has massive sorrow in his heart because his people don't, are, are rejecting Jesus. So what's the solution to Paul's pain? We find this in the next path, in the next part, verses 6 through 13. Please read with me. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But though Isaac shall your offspring be named, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now remember, Sarah was 98 years old at the time. When God made this promise, Sarah laughed. She said, you got to be kidding me. Do you not know I'm 98? How can I have children? And yes, at that time, the biology worked the same way. Those of us who may be a 
approaching the 60s and 70s and 80s. Can you imagine having a child and God promising that you're going to have a child next year? I would hope you would laugh too. Because that is the most ridiculous thing that you could hear. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had nothing uh, and had done nothing either good or bad in the order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older is going to serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What is Paul doing here? Paul is going back through the history of Israel. It's almost like the greatest compilation CD. And we will see here that he's pulling from approximately 10 different scriptures from this point all the way through verse 29. If you guys imagine those videos like you might watch on YouTube or something of, of um, tr- great uh, speakers or great artists and they have... Let's say a musician might have 15 really good songs and they put together a three-minute compilation of those 15 songs. Like, oh yeah, I remember that song. That was great. Oh, oh, that was great too. Oh, I forgot about that one. That was awesome too. And by the end of the three minutes, you were like blown away of how great that artist was. That is what Paul is doing here as we start going through the scripture of the Old Testament. And I'm going to treat it that same way as well. We're just going to have little spit baths along the way to help remind us, to help prompt us of how great God is. The solution to Paul's pain is rooted in this idea in verse 8. The means of this is not the children in the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise that are counted as offspring. As one theologian I read this week says, it's not about the race, it's about God's grace. And so even though these people were born into the nation of Israel does not mean that they're going to be closer to God in the same way today. As we grow our children up in a Christian home, we would like for them to become Christian, but we know that at some point they may not become Christians and they may reject everything that we have taught them and everything that the church has taught them. Because it's not them who chooses this. I know this is a sensitive subject for some, but it is God who is the one who chooses. As we will see here in a few minutes. It is the children of the promise. Not the children of race. Or not the children of knowledge. Or not the children of anything else. And so he begins to take comfort in the fact. As he begins to reflect. On the nation of Israel. As he is instructing the Roman church. We have to be reminded that the Roman church. Was made up of both Jews. And non-Jews. And there had to be a great debate at some point in that church of, well, I'm a Jew. I'm a Christ follower. Well, have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? No. Why would I need to do that? 
I was born into this. And what are those people over there doing? They weren't born into, they're not Jews. They're Egyptians. They're from Corinth. They're from Ephesus. They shouldn't belong to us. We're the children of God. And Paul is simply saying, no. God is saying, no. Because it's the children of the promise. And what is the promise? It's the promise of the new covenant. As Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, he says, I'll read right out of Ephesians 1. He writes this. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us and he adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Think about that thought for just a moment. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before he even created anything, he knew you. What? How's that work? I don't know. But it's not impossible for him, for he has created everything. And he had his eye on you before he created the world. You're special. You're loved. You're cared for. And even if you're exploring the Christian faith, and you may be hearing this for the first time, and you may be like, well, I don't know if I'm cared for. I don't know if I'm loved. Well, possibly you are. Possibly he has chosen you before the foundations of the earth. So maybe we ought to explore that a little more. And if you'd like to, uh, come to Pastor Roger or myself and let's have a conversation about that and let's explore that. The thing that I find astonishing about this solution is that he bases all of this on a promise. He says that he's going to do something. So he obligates himself to do it. Now in human terms... How many promises have we made in our lives? How many promises have we not kept? And yet he is the one who keeps the promise. It is absolutely astounding to consider his integrity. To consider when he says that I will never abandon you, I will never forsake you. That he will never abandon us. And he will never forsake us. That he is with us to the end of the age. That he is our shepherd. That he will lead us beside streams of water. Make us lie down in green pastures. That he will comfort us. That he is with us in this place right now. And for those of us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior, his spirit dwells in our hearts right now. So he's beginning to take the focus off of the race. And he's saying, no, it's the children of promise. 
Look and see what he did with Sarah. Look what he did with Rebecca. And surprisingly, at that time, the oldest was the one who received the birthright. And God, in his surprising and wonderful way, said, no, the younger is going to get the birthright. And the older is going to serve him. Why? Because I said so. Do we not say that to our kids at times? Why, mom? Why, dad? Because I said so. That's the way it is. That's the way this is going to roll. Are we beginning to see his sovereignty beginning to emerge? Are we beginning to see his freedom in choosing what he wants to do when he wants to do it emerge? Does that not scare us a little? Absolutely. You mean I'm not in control of my life? Mm, You're in control of aspects of your life. But there are some aspects of your life where he is in absolute control. And I would even subject that, that even the minor things in life, if we dig down deep enough, he plays a large part in steering you into those decisions and into those situations. Well, if that's the solution, this children of promise, what's the reason behind the solution? Why would he, why would he say that? Why would he do this? Here he goes back through a compilation of five different ideas in the Old Testament. First is the case of Moses. He's sovereign. If you would, look with me back down to verses 14. And I'm going to to go through these one by one here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, he is really asking the question. By no means. He says that's absolutely ridiculous. God is just. He can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And he doesn't need your permission to do it. And for us who live in America. Who um, largely have an idea of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. And self-determination. This rubs a lot of people the wrong way. What do you mean? I've done everything right. What do you mean? I can do this. God says, no. No, I am the one who's going to do this. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, this comes Shortly after the golden calf incident, we remember that. Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days. He's talking with God. The people of Israel get really nervous. They think that he is not coming back. They think he's dead. And so they take all of the gold they have and they melt it and they form it into this golden calf and they begin to worship the golden calf because that's their new God. Moses comes down from the mountain with the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, and is horrified. In fact, he breaks them. And he just chastises his brother and everybody. What are you doing? Did you not notice that 90 days ago that he parted the Red Sea? And we walked across that dry seabed and the greatest army in the world vanquished, was, was vanished or vanquished? 
under the sea, and now you're worshiping a calf? What's your problem? And so he begins to have this conversation with God. And in that conversation with God, he goes, what shall we call you? And God won't. He says, show me your glory. What shall we call you? Show me your glory. God says, I'm not going to show you my glory. I am going to have mercy on who I am going to have mercy on. I am going to have compassion on who I am going to have compassion on. He is demonstrating in that instance that he is sovereign. That he is free. That there is freedom, his freedom, in the face of human rebellion. And we could say the same would be true for today. Secondly, in the case of the Pharaoh, that he is powerful. Again, look with me in verse, um, well, yeah, verse 16. It says, so it does not depend on human, human will or exertion, but God who has mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Now, in the midst of this story, there were the ten plagues going on. Pharaoh in the Egyptian culture was seen as almost like a divine human being. Their god was Ra, the, the, the sun god. He was the, the, the Pharaoh was the intercessor between Ra and the people. And he was, had divine qualities. He was seen as a god. And here comes the god Plague after plague after plague because he wants his people to leave. And the Pharaoh won't let him go. Ten plagues later, Pharaoh finally says, Uncle, after the firstborn of all the Egyptians are killed. And on the way out, he says, Moses and Aaron, get your people out of here and please ask your God to bless me. You see, in this power play here, and the reason why he brings this up right here, is because he wants to demonstrate that God is powerful over everything in creation because he is the one who created it. He is sovereign. He is powerful. Third, in the case of the potter, he is a purpose for everyone. As we continue to read, he says, so he has mercy upon whomever he wills and he will harden whomever he wills. This is also the case of the Pharaoh. He hardened the Pharaoh's heart. You will say then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Will the molder, or will what the molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? See, he is the potter. And he shapes us as the clay. This comes out of the passage of, of Job and Isaiah, kind of a, a com combination of the two. And he wants to make sure in this, when he says that he has a purpose for everyone, that we don't invert the relationship. And we become the creator and he becomes the creator or the creature. He wants to make sure that we understand that he is the creator and we are the creature. He is the one that molds and shapes us and does what he pleases with us. And that everyone has a purpose. As he continues, he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out as the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and the other, honor, uh, and the other for dishonorable use? Now, why would he do that? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why would he do that? Why would he take a group of people and destine them for destruction? That seems cruel. It seems capricious. Let's read on. The purpose is in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Have we ever considered, Christian, speaking with, to Christians, when we look at our lives and we say, gosh, why did God choose me and love me in the way that he has and he hasn't chosen my brother, my cousin, my sister, my neighbor, my good friend? Look at the way that God has protected me and comforted me and taken me through the trials and tribulations of life, and yet he hasn't done the same for someone over there. The reason why he does that is to show his mercy to us, that we don't deserve any of it, but he does it for us anyway because he loves us, which then brings greater glory to him because we know that we don't deserve it. And as we bring greater glory to him, we worship and praise him in ways that we would never have done before. And that usually is expressed in, thank you, God. I can't believe what you have done in my life. For I look at everyone else that I know or these people I know, and I look at the troubles that they have, and yet you've protected me from all of this. You see, there's a contrast that we would not know if everybody was in the same boat, it works out to his glory. That's hard truth. Hard, hard truth. Unpleasant truth. We move on. He says, even before he's called us, not the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And he's indeed said to, in Hosea, for those who were not my people, I will call my people. And to her who were not beloved, I will call beloved. Here's the idea of the rejected become the chosen. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Now, at this part of Israel's history, they were being very, 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 very naughty. And God had had enough with them. So he put Hosea into their life and he became a prophet. He had Hosea... Marry a gal. It's a prostitute. And they had two kids. One of the kids was named Not My People. And the other kid was named No Mercy. Literally, how would you like to have your kids name that? Not My People and No Mercy. What's your little first grade class? First day. Not My People Jones and No Mercy Jones. There's got to be a story behind that. What's the story? 
right? And God was simply saying that I'm done. You are not my people anymore, Israel, because you've been so naughty. You have to repent. And here we have another passages where, where he brings it in. He says that, that those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those who are not my beloved, I will love them. It's the rejected become the chosen in the wonders of God's amazing grace. He has a surprising plan. So he's, he's untamed, and he's going to surprise us. He has a purpose for everyone. He is powerful. He is sovereign. And the last, in the case of Isaiah, he never forgets his promise. Keep reading with me in verse 27. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, he says, The number of the sons of Israel as be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And, Isaiah, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us the offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you see the importance of the promise? He's not left us the offspring. What is the offspring? The offspring is the children of the promise. He never forgets his promise. So, where does that bring us? What can we take from this? Came across another um, Christian writer who has absolutely nailed it on the head. So I'm going to read a, a few things that he has written because it is so spot on. We have to understand before we get to that, that all of this is undergirded, undergirded and driven by his crazy love for us. We have to understand that he pursues us, relentlessly pursues us. Why? Because we are created in his likeness and image. Because he sees us precious in his sight. Because in the image of a crown being on top of a king or queen's head, we are that crown on him. When we look at a king and queen, do we look at the face of the king and queen or do we look at that big thing on top of them? We always look at the big thing on top of them because that's the crown jewel. That's the best. That's... The sparkle and the glitter and the spectacular, the diamonds and the rubies and the emeralds and the this and the that. We can't keep our eyes off of that. And he says, that's what you are to him. He can't keep his eyes off of you. And that promise is not only for you, but it's for everyone. We remember that God does not wish anyone to perish, but everyone to come to know who he is. And that's what ought to compel us and motivate us to share our story of how God has worked into our lives. And so as we look at the point of all of this, God is sovereignly and freely chooses whom he will be merciful to because of his promise 
and it glorifies him. So what's our response? Four things. One, become humble. As this writer writes in his book, Living the Glory of God, he says, rather than promoting pride and elitism, this idea of God choosing is a profoundly humbling doctrine or belief to those who believe in Jesus. It keeps us from reversing the roles with God, which is exactly Paul's point here. It persuades us to let God be God by teaching us that there are some things that God has not revealed to us because they are not good for us to know or what tomorrow might bring. Why would he do that? So that we can depend upon him. So our faith would grow stronger. And so we could get to know him in ways that we may have ever, never been able to get to know him otherwise. This idea of God choosing other, God making these choices also humbles us by making us realize that we owe everything to God's grace. There is nothing we have done to deserve it. We can't negotiate with him. We can't offer him a bribe. It's simply because of his unmerited favor towards us. When our eyes have been opened, we see that our salvation is entirely due to his sovereign love. Secondly, it becomes a great encouragement to us and comforting to those who call Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It tells us that God chose us rather than we chose him and that he chose us even though that he knew everything about us, even before he created the world. (laughs) I just find that crazy. He knows me so well, and he knows everything that I've done. He knows every thought that I have thought. He knows how wayward I have been with him. And he knew all of that before the creation of the world. And he still says, hey, David's my guy. I want him. (laughs) For me, that's tremendous encouragement and comfort. It takes all the pressure off of me to perform for him because I'm trying to earn something. He loves me just because of who I am. Third, It helps us remain confident because as we reflect back on Scripture, we know that He's never going to abandon us or forsake us. He's never going to lead us astray. He's never going to lie to us. He's always going to be with us in the good times and the bad. And as those good times are bad and seasons of lives happen, I am going to grow into greater dependence and greater faith upon Him. My relationships are going to grow stronger. So the next time I have the season in life that's really difficult, I know I can rely upon him. I'm confident that he's going to be there. And he's going to be with me. And he's going to be with my family. And yeah, may it stretch us to, like Stretch Armstrong gets stretched. Remember Stretch Armstrong for those people who are old enough to remember Stretch Armstrong? And you eventually get to that point where you see the jelly coming out. There are times that I feel like the jelly's coming out of me. 
He stretches me so much. But as I look back on my life with him, and hopefully as you look back on your life with him, you can be, remain confident that he is going to be with you. And he's going to strengthen you. And you're going to have a wonderful story to tell as other people you may know be going through the same things at various points in their life. Lastly, our response ought to be of resounding joy. J.I. Packer, who is an um, esteemed theologian uh, of today, he says, um, J.I. Packer calls this idea of God choosing us uh, the family secret. He says, believers ought to have joyful security that is incomprehensible for the world. True believers, as John Piper would say, who's a pastor, would say um, this idea of, of God choosing us is not a, a belief not to be argued about, not a doctrine to be, but a doctrine to be enjoyed. It's not designed for disputes. It's designed for missions. It's not meant to divide people, though it will. It's meant to make them more compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and forgiving, and to fill them with joy. As we consider this most difficult Uh, presentation of who God is. My hope is that it would begin to spark your imagination of who the true God is. And for those of us who struggle with that control issue, for us to say, okay, I get it now. I see how all of these things have come together and I'm going to relinquish control to you. Because you are good, you are benevolent, you are wise, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are loving, you are comforting. And your way is the better way. And then as we live that out, that we become humble, we stay encouraged, we remain confident, and we are a group filled with resounding joy. Let us pray. Fathers, we come to you. Let your words sink into our hearts the ways that you have appropriated them and for your purpose and glory. And for those of us who struggle with issues like this and, and the God who is in complete and utter control, um, may we seek out advice and comfort from those who have, may have walked through this before so that we may find comfort and peace in our time of struggle. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.